Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I believe in making a change at the micro level. So I tend to look inside my close circle and see whose lives can I actually impact and propel on a daily basis. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I'm thrilled that you've chosen to spend this time with me and excited to bring you today's special episode. Allow me to present to you the first up in this new series we're calling Impact Positive. Miss Catherine Rezaia, Chief Commercial Officer at LightSource BP. Now, I admittedly didn't know much about Catherine when John brought her to my attention, but boy, am I ever glad to have met her. I expect that you'll enjoy getting to know her as much as I did. Her story is impressive, as is her sheer determination, willpower, intelligence, and intuition. That, and she's a Duke grad, so she's got a lot going for her. As we said in yesterday's intro to the series, we'll be bringing you more episodes like these focused on shining a light on underrepresented perspectives, people groups, and pathways meant to inspire you along your journey and gear you up to help make your impact positive as well. You'll find those over at mysuncast.com, along with 145 other inspiring and influential leaders' stories. While you're there, do check out the Suncast tribe and join the mailing list so you won't miss out when the next episode drops. One quick note as you head into the episode. If you're a regular listener to Suncast, you know that I take audio quality very seriously, and I have to fall on my sword here. John and I tried so hard to get the audio right, but the recording goblins got into this one. And the audio on our side, not on Catherine's side, is frankly very poor. I'm going to have to apologize and ask your forgiveness. Since much of the interview is actually Catherine's voice, I do hope that you'll bear with us in the doldrums when John or I have the mic and focus on the solid gold that we were able to produce with Miss Catherine Rezaia. Now, get ready for Impact Positive here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, we've teased this out in the episode on Tuesday. We've talked about it just now in the intro, but I am really eager to hear your feedback and to introduce you to today's guest on what we're calling Impact Positive, a, uh, a subset of interviews on here on Suncast. Today's guest is Catherine Rezaia, Chief Commercial Officer at LightSource BP. And Catherine has a really interesting, uh, I might say unique story. And today I think we're going to tease out how, while it may be unique, it doesn't have to stand alone as this sort of thing that is uniquely hers and no one else could possibly duplicate the lens that we've ex- expressed here for what we think needs to happen in terms of raising, elevating voices in our industry has more to do with 
perspectives that uh, often get overlooked. So today we're going to unpack the story of Catherine and how she has uh, risen to be an executive, not once, but multiple times in the solar industry. What that means for not just her career, but others who may want to follow in her footsteps. Catherine, welcome to Suncast. Thanks so much, Nico. Hi, everybody. Fantastic. And of course, I've got our co-host for Impact Positive, Mr. John Bonanno, Chief Experience Officer at CalCEF. And actually, why don't you introduce yourself again? Because I hear people refer to you in, in, with a number of different titles. And uh, I often get, uh, often wonder, like Nexus or CalCEF, or how do you prefer for folks to think of you? Well, it's the uh, New Energy Nexus and the California Clean Energy Fund is one of our programs. The title itself of CXO was a was a, a creation of Danny Kennedy, and anybody that knows Danny will will know how wonderful he is. And the CXO was the expander role. Ah, uh, um, yeah. So it's the expand and deepen the impact of our nonprofit. Catherine, we like to start out thinking back to why or how someone has gotten found themselves in the clean energy business to begin with. You know, I'll let you tell a bit about your background and history. But you have a fantastic career trajectory, and on the outside, it looks uh, very well planned. And I know that <laughs> all of those types of careers are not necessarily uh, no. are not necessarily that way. Could you give us some, some insight into how and when you sort of decided that you wanted to be in the clean energy business, and maybe bring us up to your first role in clean energy, and, let, and let's start pulling some threads there. Yeah, absolutely. I, much like everybody else, uh, just landed blindly in clean energy. It was around 2004, 2005, and I was working in finance because like a good immigrant child, you can either go into finance or medicine, and then if you're a real failure, you can consider law. <laughs> so um, so I, I was working in finance and just absolutely hating it. I went out to look for a job, and I had some criteria. I knew I wanted to be downtown San Francisco. I knew I didn't want to work ludicrous hours anymore, and you know I wanted to still have lunch with my friends. And that literally left two companies. It was McKesson and PG&E. I didn't care about what industry I was going to end up in. PG&E was just emerging from its first bankruptcy at the time. I was lucky enough to get in, and my interview went something like, do you know what renewable energy is? I said, no, I don't know what energy is. And they said, okay, um, do you know what, um, you know, biomass and solar and, and wind resources are? And I said, no, absolutely not. And they said, perfect. You're going to be our lobbyist to the PUC on all these things. <laughs> so I started, I think, two weeks later and was just at the right place at the right time. It was awesome. So, Catherine, I remember you and I meeting first in about 2006, and thankfully you did have time for lunch because uh, you and uh, myself and a couple of uh, PGD friends ended up having several lunches many yeah. times very successfully. I'm often in awe of, of folks that travel very long distances into unknown lands with unknown languages and just kind of hit the ground and run. I think it's important for the listener to know where the journey actually began, because you looking for your first job out of out of finance, going into clean energy, that's very exciting. And we want to know more about that. But where did the journey begin, begin? I came to the States with my family in 89 from the Ukraine. And 89 was still a time that you can come to America and make it and immigrants and weren't frowned upon. They were embraced. So we came right to the Bay Area. Not a word of English, just none of us. 
And uh, it was an interesting time. I'm an only child. I was nine. My parents were in their very early 30s. My grandma was with us, who was super anti-immigration. And it was an interesting time, but everyone made it. Everyone's still in the Bay Area uh, doing really well. But, you know, there were a couple of years that were really challenging. To your credit, I mean, your parents literally dropped you right into the San Francisco public school system, which probably was quite different from the Ukraine in 19, in 1989. Tell me a little bit about how you landed and how you successfully navigated through that challenging environment. Yeah, looking back at it now, it was such a scary time. And I remember sometimes it was, I mean, it was frightening. And I remember sometimes crying at night, but at night because I never wanted my parents to see how hard it was for me because I saw how hard it was for them during the day. And it's interesting looking now that, you know, I have children. Would they be doing the same? Would they be a student enough at nine to have that full kind of macro picture? Anyway, we arrived two weeks later. My parents dropped me off at a San Francisco public school. And it was so eye-opening because it was, it was literally the first time I've ever seen diversity. I mean, I came from a country that, where everyone looked exactly like me. It's like we just came off a factory line. It was the first time I saw someone of color. I've never seen Asians. I've never seen um, anyone of African descent. It was really really interesting, but also comforting in a way that here I was and I was different and uh, maybe that was okay. Amazing that you then went on to the best high school in all of San Francisco's public school system. Fast forwarding to a wonderful decision to go to Duke Fuqua for your MBA. How did you decide on on Duke? Because I mean, certainly here in the Bay Area, there's plenty of good schools right here. What made you decide on Duke? You know, my parents asked me that and and they concluded that probably I was a transient at heart because I came from another country. So they're like, you obviously don't care where you go. Um, But (laughs) I I had a couple of options, one in California, one in New York, and one um, obviously Duke in North Carolina. And I went for a visit and I just fell in love because there, here was this enclave of really cool progressive people, great universities, great climate. I was like, yeah, let me try that. All the while knowing that I'll probably end up back in the Bay Area too, but it was the right experience. I'm curious as, as someone being sort of dropped into this, it really does have an almost Ivy League feel, like even the campus, very reminiscent of uh, the Yales and Harvards, but all around the trappings around the university are as diverse as it gets, right? So you go from uh, San Francisco, super diverse, into a whole other layer, the South, where you're in Durham, uh, other unlike uh, Chapel Hill, you're forced to interact with, with the neighbors, right? How do you feel like going to the South as opposed to an Ivy League school in the, in the, in the Northeast or the West prepared you for what you were getting ready to do in your professional career? I have the unique perspective of being an immigrant that doesn't necessarily look like one. Yeah. Right? I'm a white-skinned immigrant Most of the time, people can't hear my accent. So even though I'm from a third world country and had to make it like, um, you know, a a lot of people who who are from third world countries, people talk to me openly about their views on immigration. I've heard some interesting things, you know, definitely going to the South reveals kind of a lot of the underbelly as a lot as and and also some really fantastic things. So it was very mixed. The arc of your career is you came out of undergraduate to pg and We talked a bit about that, although we didn't talk about your role as a buyer at pg and which I think is critical because it actually puts you in a, pers- with a, it gives you a perspective at a young age of 
the pieces that move within the energy sector, right? My, my huge critique of just about anyone who hasn't been at a utility in our industry is that solar executives and participants alike don't understand power. They don't understand the utility fabric. Uh, the good developers understand how utilities work. Help us understand your work at PG&E, why it pushed you into getting an MBA, and then coming out of that MBA, how you chose Evolution Markets and that as the sort of not logical progression of where you were going. I think very early on, I fell in love with deal making. If you admit that to yourself, if you admit that and embrace it, that really sets you up for entrepreneurship. So at PG&E, being exposed to these large size renewable transactions, and at the time it was a buyer's market, but we were pitched by many developers and I saw how decision-making, how the sausage was made. I saw who was involved, what it took to push certain transactions through behaviors, all these things. And that literally prepared me for everything else I was going to do after that. When you say large transactions, can you be specific around whether you mean megawatts or dollars or both? And then I really would love to hear how you were learning inside of this sort of Inside of this culture, were you being mentored internally or were you seeking and asking good questions and trying to surround yourself with smart people? So at the time, California had just passed a really robust RPS requirement. And PG&E, Edison, and San Diego were in procurement mode and had to buy just gigawatts or enter into long-term contracts for gigawatts of renewable energy. So it was also something new to PG&E. PG&E's never done this before. They've done tolling agreements. They've done conventional generation agreements. But here was this mandate. So PG&E basically put five people on it, um, led by a very sharp, quick guy who literally served as a mentor to all of us, but I'm not sure he knew that. And then they drafted a couple of more people to this team. And I think at the time, we negotiated more than 10 gigawatts of generation contracts for PG&E. It was such an exciting time. But what was missing for me as an ambitious young person in my late 20s was career progression. And I think if you talk to anyone in the utility world or in this old kind of corporate ladder world, you basically have to wait for someone to die in order Mm -hmm. to get your dream job. You know, I talked to my parents about it. Again, their immigrant mentality kicked in and they're like, well, perfect. Just wait 30 more years and you'll get your dream job. And I just (laughs) said, that's not something I can do because I'm me. So, so, so it's time to go. I was lucky my whole career, my whole life. It's kind of a series of really lucky events. I went to lunch with our vice president at the time. And he said, Catherine, you need to go spread your wings. Absolutely. You need to go to business school. You were pushed out of the nest. I was a top performer and they, he basically said that that's a way, that's something I needed to do. People I listen to now, James Altucher, Gary Vaynerchuk, they're very anti-grad school or school at all. Like, is this a path that you think is still viable? I guess what I'm wondering is like, does school these days give you the platform, the network, et cetera, that is necessary? And is that something that you would still recommend to folks coming along behind you? It's a really good question because it's also very expensive to undertake that, not just in terms of tuition, but in terms of opportunity cost. So I would say two things. One, I had a great experience at Duke, uh, at Fuqua. In terms of network, I think it's unparalleled. In terms of learnings, do you learn some special thoughts in business school? I would say no. Um, And it also depends on what kind of career trajectory you envision for yourself. I think if you go the corporate route, you need the credential. I think if you have entrepreneurial ambitions, 
I think it still helps. It still helps to have the training, the discipline, and the credential if you want to raise money. You want to instill investor trust that you're, you know, you're going to be more careful and you're going to be more prudent. And you learn some of that in business school. So you returned to the Bay Area after your time in North Carolina. This is a time where I remember uh, you and I would get together in San Francisco and discuss what was happening at, at Evolution. And for the first time ever, I was learning about a way in which analysis is done for utility scale power, whether it be energy storage or arbitrage or solar generation or whatever it was. Talk me through that that phase of evolution because it was really, really interesting about node congestion, real-time pricing, avoidance contracts, opportunity costs. I mean, it was just an incredible adventure that they were at evolution. But tell me your process there and, and remind yourself of conversations we had about how there was a lot of ebullience about how we could replace so much of the fossil resources with non-fossil resources if we just managed it all correctly. Absolutely. Um, You know, back to the point of deal making, evolution taught me most of the things I know today about deal making. Evolution is a large brokerage platform for power and renewables in the U.S. And evolution makes money when it identifies a deal and connects counterparties to execute a deal. So everyone that works at Evolution looks at how to grow their business and how to, and and in my case, it was how to grow renewable energy in the, in the West. And um, those were the conversations we're having at the time, John, when a lot of my clients were thinking, okay, how do I bring in resources into my current resource mix? How do I integrate them? What's their value today? What's going to be their value in 20 years? Everybody was grappling with these questions and I had a front row seat at Evolution. The success here that you're having is for any executive, this is an amazing path. So talk me through the transition between where you were at Evolution and then all of a sudden you, Susan, Jackie, decide we need to do advanced microgrid, which was a not a very obvious moment. And, and to set this up, I got tuned in to advanced like everybody else at the moment they won the 50 megawatts. And it was like, wait a minute, I've seen this story before. I can remember, I can remember when Petra won their 20 megawatts. I can remember when Sterling Energy won their 280 megawatts at four cents, you know, and, and everyone was at generation costs of 20-ish cents. So it was was like very disconnected. It was was this moment of exuberance, but it was also a moment of, wow, we have an unknown quantity trying to deliver a really interesting but challenging asset. Talk me through that because just that the women were the founders is amazing and should be discussed. And also how you looked at that first 50 megawatts. I would say that my whole career has been a series of these very fortunate events. I, I got my position at Evolution through my network. Basically, I was still in business school when Evolution called me and said, hey, will you take this um, job on the San Francisco desk? Again, to highlight the, the value of the network. It was similar with Advanced Microgrid, or you know, this was before Advanced Microgrid existed. I was introduced to Susan Kennedy, 
who I, I knew by reputation, but had never met previously, by someone in my network. And they said, Catherine, um, we want you to meet somebody. She's got some pretty wacky ideas, but she's got the vision. She needs a transaction and you could be the transaction. So I was introduced to Susan and the way it worked out is she was the vision and she's visionary and Jackie was the reputation and I was the transaction. You know, Susan came to me and she said, wouldn't it be cool if instead of power plants down in Southern California, because nobody wants another power plant on the beach, there was a system of energy storage networks that both supported the grid and saved customers money. And I had no idea what she was talking about. Just nothing. I didn't, I, I didn't see it. I didn't understand it. I didn't, know, I didn't know what behind the meter was. I didn't know what storage was. It was like getting that job at PG&E when I, when I knew nothing about energy. But I understood transactions and I understood utilities and I understood deal making. And Susan needed that to complement her vision. She invited me to start Advanced Microgrid with her. To have that sort of vision and clarity at that moment is really, really inspiring because as I was just through your evolution experience, being woken up to this network of energy effect, you guys were figuring out how can we optimize, which is like that next evolutionary step is, is you know, that's the avoidance part. It was really an unexpected turn in my life because here I was, I had a great job and a salary. And here was this person who's never started a company before, who had a vision that's never been implemented before convincing me to quit my job while I was eight months pregnant with my second child. And uh, she convinced me to do it and we did it. And um, we did it brilliantly. That is for sure. (laughs) I'm sorry. We're going to back up. (laughs) Eight months pregnant. And yeah. your second show, John yeah. is going to gloss over this because he knows your story. Yeah. Holy smokes. Two things stand out to me right here, right? One is how you deal with uncertainty. And the other is I'm curious whether you have a benefit for yourself, whether you were propelling yourself forward versus other people seeing the skill sets in you that you had not quite yet put your finger on or identified, i.e. you're a deal maker, you're the transaction glue. You are this, that, or the other. Were you getting this feedback from others in your sphere or were you seeing this inside of yourself and saying, this is my role? I think forever and to this day, I, like many women and just many people in the industry, will struggle with imposter syndrome. So today I realize my talents because I see my track record and I see what I've done and I see, uh, I see my deals and I see the teams that I've built and my network that now follows and looks up to me. At the time, I didn't, you know, I, I knew I was uh, able to execute, but you never know how good you are, I think. So you do need these people along the way kind of pushing you out of your comfort zone, saying, yes, you're good enough. Yes, you're the person to do this, and you're the only person to do this. And then once you do it, that's where your confidence comes from. And then you think, I can do this again. Hey, simple question. When was the last time you were truly delighted at a customer support interaction? My friends at Helioscope do their best to delight their customers every single day. And that's why dozens of solar developers have claimed Helioscope has the best customer support they've ever seen. Not just in the solar industry, but in all their interactions. See for yourself. Head to mysuncast.com and click the Helioscope banner on the homepage. And as a Suncast listener, you'll be gifted an extra 30 days to your free trial. That's 60 free days to see what Helioscope can do for you. Find out why more solar companies trust Helioscope than any other design program on the market. 
Does your current asset management software provider call just to check in? If you're already using PowerHub, well, I know your answer is yes. See, when you're using PowerHub's asset management software, your customer success specialist is your guide and advocate. PowerHub's not just a software provider, they're a partner for your growth. And their seasoned customer success team is known throughout the industry for helping developers spot and address core business inefficiencies. They have the largest customer success team in the industry for a reason, so that your business grows, not just bigger, but better, with PowerHub in your corner. Go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. I think that the imposter syndrome is is definitely not unique to you. Many people, as they're expanding their emotional and professional condition, will say, well, is that really me? Am I able to value myself in that new way? And recasting your own image is, is that growth that happens that is not exactly elegant at times. That's a super important one as a young executive listening to this, someone saying whether man or woman or, or person of color or whatever it might be, it is for everyone. And I think a lot of it goes back to just being an immigrant and seeing my parents try really hard and they gave me a lot of confidence. So I grew up as a very confident child. I always felt loved. I was supported. I had all this formal schooling. I also never felt like, yes, I am an executive, certainly not in my early 30s when I just came out of business school and was pretty bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and certainly not of this new company, except that people are, you know, I I did look around and I said, okay, but who's going to do this better than me? And there's a couple of people I trust in the industry. I have a pretty robust network of um, just brilliant people, really supportive. And I said, should I do this? am I the right person to do this? And the answer was, if you are not the right person, there is nobody else. That's right. And then you dive in head first, you're eight months pregnant, as you said. Yeah. And very soon afterwards, you bring in this big contract, but this was not a company between the three of you founders. This was not a company that had an ebullience of balance sheet or, I mean, there were, it was a tightrope walk the whole way. Talk to me a bit about what made this different. What was advanced microgrids like, real special sauce besides being certainly woman founded and woman led for even today but what was really on the inside there what was the magic that made you take that jump and then it's also going to transition to me to how you went to the next opportunity too but talk to me about what was the magic there well uh, i have to give credit where it's due and i think a lot of the magic is susan kennedy and she and i have had our disagreements our up and down throughout the years but she is a true visionary and she lived and breathed the company, as did I. I wouldn't recommend this, but I went to work six days after I gave birth. Could I have taken time off? Yes, I could have. But I have a supportive partner and I was excited about what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And, and you were negotiating that first 50, weren't you at that point? I was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Like right on the desk. It was, yeah. it was there at that point because you only were there what, uh, almost eight months before that, that contract closed. Is that right? Yeah, we started working on that deal, even uh, kind of towards the end of me leaving Evolution. Mm-hmm. What was the secret sauce? The secret sauce is that we were giving it our all. And the secret sauce was that we understood deal making. And we understood that we were in this very specific period in time where absolutely none of the stakeholders wanted another power plant to go up in Southern California. And it was this very unique time to push something through that will evolve 
the industry completely. What is your key single takeaway to successful deal making? Timing. And how do you control timing? <laughs> is it just luck? You just happen to be right place, right time? No. Uh, that's a really good question, John. So before Susan and I started the company, she spent two years understanding the market. She was formerly uh, chief of staff to Schwarzenegger and she was a PC commissioner. She understood how the political tides are turning. And she spent a year previously talking with one of Edison's largest customers, selling them on the idea that if Southern California Edison ever wanted to do this battery storage project. This was an opportunity for a flagship customer to stand up and show leadership. And I think if you understand the motivations of everybody involved, that's what gets you the, the, the best deal. That's the key is, is finding out what all stakeholders need. And everyone is not always transparent in the transaction. So your ability to pull out those motivations and their needs is critical to making sausage, as you said before. I just commend you on getting that done. I think that's right. I think if people show up, they want to get the deal done. The rest of it is details. But if they showed up, there's a deal to be had. But there is a transition out because the story didn't almost end well. I mean, there was a point there where, you know, Susan pulled all of her money out of a retirement fund, went in, got the former governor to come up, pony up some more capital. Yeah. I mean, your balance sheet had to be pretty darn thin at that point. Representing, <laughs> welcome to startups. Yeah, yeah, welcome to startups. But but at some point, some people have to make decisions for themselves, right? And, yeah. and whether it's wind it down or, or whether it's, you know, power forward and we'll, we'll ride this thing on fumes, you got to keep people in their seats. And qualified people in the Bay Area are super, super hard to keep in their seats when there's financial instability. Yeah. Talk to me about that transition out. Susan told me day one that she's all in. And every day since, she has shown everybody that she is all in. And being Susan's partner at AMS were um, initially just the best years of our lives, right? We were building a team. We were implementing change in the energy industry. What could be more exciting than that? Show me a VC-backed company that at some point does not have financial strain because you want to grow and you want to grow at your own pace that may or may not be commensurate with VC views and exit strategies, right? For me, what happened about three years into the company was, it was a series of micro and macro level issues. At the micro level, at the company level, Susan and I, and I fell into our partnership pretty quickly, and maybe we didn't necessarily ask the right questions of each other. So I think what we found down the line is that we weren't entirely aligned in where we wanted to grow the business in which direction and um, how quickly. And over time, those uh, differences became pretty obvious. Now, now I know what questions to ask. <laughs> so that was happening at the company level. At the macro level, I just did not see the growth for distributed storage at a pace that was keeping me interested. I love R&D, but I love deals. And, <laughs> and if deals are going to be five years down the line or 10 years down the line, I'll come back. But I can't live in the um, kind of R&D experimental world until then. I need to be where the transactions are. Your jump had certainly a lot of transactional opportunity, but leaving Susan must have been obviously very emotionally difficult and also maybe quite releasing in another way too. Tell us a little bit more about 
joining Tim and Kevin at, at Light Source because that was by far not a slam dunk. And I I've known I've been so fortunate to know Tim and Kevin since they were doing Helios way way back in the day uh, before they went to Sun Edison the first time. So I, I've I've known trust and love those guys so much. They were in a pretty tight position during those moments when you took the, uh, the the move. Talk me through that. How did you get comfortable with that move? So leaving AMS was like leaving behind my family. I mean, I, I just felt so emotional about it. And Susan and I built a company of 60 people in our own image. So everyone was handpicked and leaving that group of uh, top performers was, it was devastating. But I knew that without these moves, growth will not come to you. You have to keep moving. You have to keep agile and you have to stay true to yourself. And if I wasn't going to be happy in my role there, if I wasn't propelling the business, which was my job, then I was not creating benefit. And for for disclosure, I'm still a, a large shareholder of AMS, but I felt like personally it was time to go. And I looked around and had a couple of interesting opportunities. But what I, you know, with AMS, I caught the startup bug. I've never experienced anything so exciting and so fulfilling uh, as entrepreneurship. And there was no going back. So what I did was I looked around at, you know, and I had a couple of offers and I had offers from large companies that wanted me in as a corporate officer. And I said, okay, um, this is the money that I make, but is it going to be fulfilling? Is it going to be like those first two years at AMS where I jumped out of bed in the morning and skipped to work because that's what I wanted to recapture. So I met Tim and Kevin about a year back. They were at Sun Edison at the time and they were looking at our projects and coming in as a sponsor for our projects. That's when we met. By the time I was ready to exit, they were winding down Sun Ed's bankruptcy and also ready to do something new. And the three of us got together and decided to start something. And LightSource came in afterward as a sponsor. When I first self-selected into Tim and Kevin, uh, LightSource was not in the picture. So you joined an entity with just the three amigos, and then it became LightSource. Is that what, that's what happened? Is that right? That's right. Interesting. And then BP transacted six months after you arrived with two hundred million dollars. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So, you know, all that's uh, all that stuff I said about not wanting to be a corporate officer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I am. Yeah. So I joined up with Tim and Kevin and it was, you know, and then LightSource, BP was not yet in the picture. LightSource was a large, um, well, the largest IPP in the in the UK and now in Europe, but they're still very entrepreneurial. So that was fine. That was very compatible. And about two months after I joined officially, after we joined LightSource, we started onboarding BP and BP took a 43% stake in LightSource. LightSource subsequently rebranded as LightSource BP. And that's been the case for essentially the past year. So we've been LightSource BP for a little over a year now. Yeah. And I have the good fortune of working with some of the people on your team on the opportunities on finance stuff. And I have to say, bar none, I'm super impressed with the LightSource team. And I think, again, you're, you're, as you said before, handpicking 18 players to really drive the transition. And I have to applaud you for that. It's really great to work with you. Absolutely. And what you just pointed out is we have a network and you and I have a network and we continue no matter where we are to connect the dots to further the renewable agenda. Would you share with us some of the important milestones for you in terms of takeaways from 
growing these companies as well as what mentors have poured into you and then how you have turned now as a mentor to others that look to you as an example? I never set out to be a mentor. It just didn't even occur to me. And maybe because I just grew up very quickly in this um, kind of land of entrepreneurship, you never stop to think, okay, I'm going to be a mentor to somebody or that somebody will actually look up to you until you find yourself in this situation where you're a young executive in your 30s and people look at you and you're a new breed to them because it's harder for them to compare themselves to a 60-year-old corporate executive than it is to someone young and driven and not always PC um, who was in their early 30s. I became really relatable, I think, for people in the industry. In turn, I give everything that I have professionally, emotionally to my team. I think it has to be entirely bi-directional. I'm friends with my teammates. I appreciate so much what they do for me on a daily basis. And I think that trust and that bi-directional loyalty builds a following. I have people who have propelled me. I have people who have made introductions for me, who have opened doors for me. And now I'm really focused on doing that for others. Just going back to the pillars of what makes a relationship, I tell young people now, uh, young people as if I'm so old, but I tell young people now, what did it for me was putting my head down, establishing a track record, at the same time treating people kindly and with respect, and with a certain level of casualness. Nobody wants to have lunch with a cardboard box. People want to know about you. And that creates a rapport where on a human level, you want to do things for each other. I take my responsibility now as a mentor really seriously. Now that you're in a position which is someone doing mentorship work and coaching and, and these sorts of things, but also, of course, being an effective executive, talk the listener through your personal strategy around philanthropy around of course philanthropy has many many shades there's you know i give money i spend time coaching yeah. i you know work with my family whatever it might yeah. be tell us about the, philosophy yeah and i'll add a little uh, sort of the three t's that i think of when it comes to giving back and to, i stole this from someone that's uh, not my words but time treasure and talent i believe in making a change at the micro level. So I tend to look inside my close circle and see whose lives can I actually impact and propel on a daily basis. And I, I really like that approach. I have a couple of mentees currently, all younger than me, uh, all kind of in, on different, some in renewable energy, some not, uh, different career paths. They're trying to understand and navigate their surroundings, both personal and professional. So one actually currently works for me. <laughs> so I was, I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, be able to match her talents to a position that I had. So now um, I get to see her every day and she's kicking butt. You know, others um, I meet with frequently and just try to be there and try to help professionally and give tangible advice. This was interesting. We held a gender in the workplace discussion the other week. It was the first of what we want to be a series. And it's just so telling women discussing issues that maybe maybe men have, maybe they don't. You know, how do you tone down your personality? How do you bring out your personality? All these things to try to fit into the world in which we operate. I try to give them guidance to say, you know what, who you are should be fine. Put your head down, show that track record, build the relationships. And then if you prove that you're good at what you do and 
there's no one parallel to you, your personality will be accepted. That will be overlooked. Catherine, I really appreciate how you've shared uh, the ways that you are proactive in investing in the lives of others around you. One of the things I think is very difficult for folks that are trying to put themselves in your shoes. Again, it's the it's the imposter syndrome of that's good for her, you know, practically Ivy League uh, educated, like got lucky enough to work at PG&E. There, I have to imagine, are a lot of folks who reach up, not just look up, but reach up to you. What would be your advice for someone who's listening today and, they're, and they are unsure what the appropriate ways to ask for mentorship are? So I will say how I've been matched with my mentees. One reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, I need tips on how to negotiate with my boss. And I do not see a lot of female executives in my career path. And I'm hoping that you could guide me. And that just went straight to, to the heart of issues that, that I think about and, and deal with every day. How do women ask for money? How do women ask for their rightful place in a company, a position that they deserve their, you know, without carrying this baggage of imposter syndrome? So that person, as I said, reached out to me on LinkedIn and I just felt compelled to help and she now works for me. There are wonderful programs that also match mentors and mentees. Um, Sky's the Limit is one. It's based in Oakland. I have one of my mentees through Sky's the Limit. Yeah, there's there's just so many different ways. Catherine, your your story is amazing just as a as an entrepreneur and as an executive. And it also is, I find, hyper enhanced from my personal excitement point of view, because we have an immigrant woman. And this is the kind of voice that can cannot get a lot of amplification in dialogue around success. And I, I'm so pleased that we were able to have this conversation today. You know, and as we've discussed, this is a kickoff of, of Impact Positive, which is, I don't know, it's a shade, it's a shade of, of Suncast. Um, but you know, it's an important discussion. We start with a woman, we start with an immigrant, and just great gratitude to you. And please continue to be part of our community as we go forward. Such a pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for the platform. It's uh, I love talking about this stuff and I love you know, now talking about this kind of stuff with friends and seeing what we could do. How could the Suncast audience find you? What's the best way for them to be in your vortex? LinkedIn, I think, is the best way to reach out to me. I I try to be responsive. I take the responsibility of paying it forward really seriously. So please feel free to reach out. Absolutely. Well, there you have it, Solar Warriors. Another fantastic executive in the solar industry laying down the truth with authenticity and transparency. We are excited for what this, this little solar flare we're calling Impact Positive. What are your thoughts? What did you think? Uh, this is Catherine Zaya, Chief Commercial Officer of LightSource BP, sharing with us her trajectory. Who else would you like to see? And what questions would you like us to be asking? Do we, did we go deep enough? Did we let Catherine off the hook? Please let us know. We'll be sharing our thoughts on this on the show notes. And uh, we look forward to more opportunities to bring positive impact, not just to the industry, but to those whose perspectives and voice uh, need elevation. Wow. I am so grateful that you stayed all the way to the end. Did you enjoy the raw intimacy of our discussion? I was just so touched 
not just by the relationship with John and Catherine, but by the depth of insight and answers, the transparency of Catherine's answers, the way that she was really willing to show us inside her thought process, the way that she has been mentored and is mentoring others, the way that she's developed her career, the twists and turns, even the doubts and concerns. You know, John and I really enjoyed that, and we'll be bringing you more episodes like it in the coming weeks and months. And if you have feedback for us, would you mind sharing it on Twitter or LinkedIn? We're eager to hear your thoughts. As always, you can find the resources and highlights from the discussion over at the blog, mysuncast.com. To learn more about today's guest or past episodes, just click on the listen link, which will take you to the episodes page. There you'll get the show notes, social media and web links and other goodies covered in each and every episode. Pretty soon, I'll set up a specific site for Impact Positive. Haven't had a chance to really do that yet, but as we bring on follow-on episodes, we'll carve out a page specific to Impact Positive so you'll be able to go find those in one specific place. Hey, while you're at the website, I do hope that you'll check out our Suncast Tribe, where you can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. You click on the member button to learn more about how to gain access to the uncut interviews and tribe exclusives that don't make it into the public Suncast feed. And of course, when you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll be notified when the next episode is out, or perhaps where I'll be next. And speaking of up next, next week I'll be in Mexico City for Solar Power Mexico, where We'll host an invite-only gathering with Helioscope and other corporate and special friends. And we do hope to see you there. If you're planning to be in Puerto Rico at the end of April for Solar Power Puerto Rico, you should consider coming in a day early on the 29th and hanging out with me and a select group of Suncast friends at an exclusive one-day mastermind meeting. Details for both of those events are only available to my Energy Tribe newsletter subscribers, so be sure you're on that list. You know, I'm so happy that you chose to be here again this week. If you're a diehard, that's three in a row, and I salute you. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>